blessed by your stamina for um, being out here engaged, active for a whole day. I've uh, enjoyed, appreciate the interaction with uh, the believers, the fellowship uh, as we speak of it that way. We would like to continue this evening uh, with the same general theme. aspect of fellowship that we have to take up, which would be um, fellowship um, in the body of Christ or fellowship with other believers. Well, just to review, uh, this is a slide I have shown twice already, but um, we pointed this out, that although we may have our own sense of what fellowship is, the New Testament does it in a specific uh, with specific connotations associations fellowship in the New Testament uh, refers to a relationship at a fundamental level uh, it has to do with real things that transpired or true about us um, so it has got some uh, ontological foundation something about the way things are right so both in our relationship to God and uh, in our relationship to one another and then a believer in Christ has real relational connections with the living God and this is what we were focused on this morning and then this evening so now uh, I would like to uh, address this question that a believer shares many things both in the present and in the future with other believers so that would be fellowship with other other believers then is what I would like to Uh, how does uh, relationship uh, and between uh, us and uh, one another and the the rest of the world? How do we differentiate it? How do we understand it? How does it happen in the church? So uh, very often, when uh, believers like us, we talk about fellowship. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to our mind is Sunday worship, right? Yes, particularly uh, in the Brethren Assemblies, uh, we think about the celebration of the Lord's Supper, communion uh, as fellowship. Uh, I would like to, th I, I've been thinking back to actually a time when I really came to appreciate Christian fellowship without any of this theology. Uh, which was when I was transplanted from the background in which I was born uh, into cold, uh, freezing Minnesota. My family attended uh, a small assembly uh, in a suburb of Minneapolis called Columbia Heights. It's called Grace and Truth Chapel. And I came to experience fellowship, that is the love and care of those who loved the Lord and loved me, loved us because of that love that they had for the Lord. It was very evident. Now I had been in the church for oh, a decade and a half plus a few more, you know, 18 years, uh, at least 10 of it uh, with a good awareness. Um, and I knew doctrine, I knew the church met and I knew that we broke bread and what it meant. Um, but there was something special here that I, I had encountered in the company of the 
these brothers and sisters who truly love the Lord. And that really showed in sharing. They shared their time, they showed interest, we spent time together, um, invited to their homes, came to our house. So a lot of interactions of sharing, uh, which are part of our social interactions, but here the only thing that connected us was the bond, the underlying bond and relationship that we had through the gospel. Now in 1 John chapter 1, 3, uh, we're going back to our core verse, uh, John writes to the church saying that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. He says, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But we are sharing these things with you so that you also can have fellowship with us. And this is an important dimension of fellowship. And so to move forward, fellowship among Christians, our first set of uh, ideas to uh, facts to look at. Fellowship among Christians comes from existing fellowship with God. However, however, we need to discern if this exists and there are two criteria given to us we look at one is of doctrine the other is of conduct so whether we have genuine authentic foundation basis for fellowship if we have commonality if we share life with someone else that pertains to Christian fellowship really has underlying criteria, one of doctrine and the other of conduct. So looking at the doc doctrinal basis of fellowship, this is an important question, one we'll see in 1 John, the other, uh, a good example we also see in the book of Acts. So one of the things that happened in the early church, the early church was growing, expanding, uh, uh, quite dramatically, you know, 5,000 people getting saved in a day, 3,000 another day, quite quite a, an explosion of growth. And then they had persecution that drove them away and some of them went north to Samaria from Jerusalem and preached the gospel to people who are really not Jews, uh, sort of a, their Samaritan religion, something, an adaptation of the Pentateuch and there's more that we could go into about the history of Samaritans. But in that uh, ministry of Philip, we read of a man, Simon. Simon heard the gospel received and Simon was baptized. A little later, the apostles come down to Samaria and they had not received the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on the believers, Samaritan believers, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And Simon wants to buy this power because he was a magician. He had deceived many. And if church history is true, Simon Magus goes down as a great heretic. If, if that connection between Simon in Samaria and church history, Simon Magus is correct. And in 1 John chapter 2, we have actually something very noteworthy. Look at this in chapter 2, 18 to 24. Uh, John writing says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Look at 19. It says, They went out from 
us. They were with us, but they went out. But they were not part of us. How do we know they're not part of us? For if they had been part of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. And sort of mysterious language, right? Not part of us, they went out. We know that they are not part of us because they left. We say, why did they leave? And I guess if we keep reading, we get a clue why they have to leave. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge coming down. Um, let me advance the slide here. So 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the lie? Skipping down to 23. So, or I'll read 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father too. So here's something that happened in the churches that Apostle John is writing to. There were some in the church. They had come in like the rest of them. But along the way, something happened. They changed their doctrine. They abandoned apostolic doctrine and teaching and embraced a Christological heresy. And it seems to be applying to them. They began to deny that Jesus Christ is truly come in the flesh. This heresy did not show up right away. And they themselves may not have embraced it right away. They were in the church, but they abandoned a fundamental truth about who, right, who the Lord Jesus is. So the earliest doctrinal controversies we find in the church are Christological controversies. There's the doctrines that teach error concerning the person of the Lord. Because it's very natural, or the natural mind could not easily kind of reconcile how could one God be three persons? And so an easy solution, and uh, the Jews, the apostles must have all struggled with this, right? Here is their own statement. I mean, what kind of man is this? That the, the wind and the waves obey him. They, they were struck with who he was. And they were convinced incontrovertibly that he was God. He is not the same as the Father. He's of the same nature as the Father, and this is and God's instruction, and also really there are <coughs> some, some um, oh, kind of not on the surface evidence already in the Old Testament, but they must have reconciled these things. And I'll have a little bit more to say about it uh, when we conclude today. But the earliest controversies were about the person of Christ. So a couple to mention would be docetism uh, or docetism. Uh, he only appeared human. He was not truly human. And this is rejected by the church. This is not correct. Jesus Christ is truly human. He did not just look like he was human. He actually joined himself to humanity. His humanity was real humanity. His experience was real experience. When he obeyed the will of the Father, there was actual real obedience in time to the will of the Father that a man did on this earth. He was truly human. This essential teaching of the New Testament. You know, when I went to study the Bible in a seminary, this is the doctrine that blew me away. I was convinced about the deity of Christ, no question. <laughs> Growing up in the assemblies, I, I could prove to you the deity of Christ from the New Testament. 
but I was totally blown away by the fact that he was truly human. I mean, a lot of faith exists where everything about the doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ is not all clear. We are not all theologians. We, haven't, we are not able to explain this. We understand and, and retain it with the level of understanding that we have. So this was on Docetism. Docetism was one that he did not truly become man. The other one is Arianism, which is propagated today in the name of those who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. That he was not truly God. He was someone less than God. It's something from also early Gnosticism where the ultimate creator had emanations. Uh, that creator would not contaminate himself with the material world, but these emanations from him are, were the ones who created the material world. So Arianism was condemned, con condemned by early church as well as uh, Docetism and other heresies. Christ was truly God. I had uh, an interesting experience once. Uh, you know, people come knocking on doors to turn you into a JW. It's a question, what do you do with them? I figured it was better for me to talk to them than they are going to my neighbor and leading them into damnable heresy. So I, I, I talked to them and engaged them and there was always a trainee and uh, one who is an expert who comes. So uh, the trainee was doing his uh, bet. And eventually I said, all right, so what you want to tell me is that we should give more honor to the Father than to the Son, right? And the man's face lit up. Yes, I finally got it. And so I took him to John's Gospel, chapter 5. So the Father has given all judgment to the Son. With what end? That all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. They closed the book and left. There was nothing more to say. But there were Christological heresies, heresies about Christ were early, they were early in the church. And here were some who were in the church and they embraced this. And I don't know how many here in the audience today you have experience of people who you thought were believers and all of a sudden they embrace something that it's, it's, a, it's a rank heresy, completely contradictory to what the Word of God teaches concerning God, salvation, in essentials. And they left, but it happened in the early church. So we ought not to be shocked by such a thing happening. I've had uh, personal friends who said, you know, a good friend, who's, who's a friend of my brother who sort of for that reason became my friend, but he said, you know, I went to one of those meetings of you guys, and there was a time I also stood up and gave a testimony uh, but I think it was all emotion. I'm not convinced anymore. So there are people who come forth under emotional excitement. The Lord Jesus told us about these possibilities, right? The, the sower goes forth to sow, and the seed falls on, on, on the roadside, it falls on rocky ground, it falls among thorns, and it falls on good soil. And the only valid growth is the one that produces fruit. Everything else is crushed. But there is a time when it sprouts and you can say it must be good. But no, as soon as persecution arises, it withers away. 
the deceitfulness of the world and riches, it crushes the seed. So, so we have uh, such possibilities are there, and so it is the right thing that they left the church. They were not part of God's people, and it only became evident later. He who denies the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In Dubuque, we have a little um, social interaction uh, with an organization called the Children of Abraham. And the Children of Abraham is uh, coming together periodically of people who are Jews and Muslims and professing Christians across the board. They come for a conversation, and there are some of us who have spoken to them. I, I was once allowed to speak what we Christians believe on something, so I, I told them like it is, or the way I did under, understand it. Uh, but there are, so we, we engage them uh, as sort of, a, sort of a, a laboratory for us and our students to know how do you engage a world that is really different in its worldview and conviction, and how do you uh, converse with them with civility? Uh, how can you be polite in disagreement? Right? How can you see at least their worldview and perspective? And these are useful things, but it's not a basis for fellowship. There's nothing real, substantial there beyond what we have in common with all humanity. And Christian fellowship goes beyond our fellowship with the rest of humanity. We do share things with all humanity, being created in the image of God and being of the same nature, but we have been brought out of that and put in all of the new circumstances we reviewed earlier in the special, in, by the grace of God, in eternal relationship with Him, and that brings us a bond that is beyond all else. So, Unless you have the Son, you do not have the Father. And there are many who mislead Christians on this matter. If you deny who Jesus is, there is no real relationship to the Father. And that is a fundamental issue. And so now this brings up the question, right? Uh, if there's a, it's too small, uh, if there's a doctrinal basis for fellowship, uh, what are the limits? Who do we have fellowship with? with, and who, we, who do we not have fellowship with? And I've had to deal with this also in this uh, journey of mine, uh, speaking of really the same uh, group of believers. Um, you know, when I, uh, I've said parts of bits of this before, um, I started college at the University of Minnesota, I was also, had done some before got my undergraduate degree. I wanted to be a scientist, um, so I applied to graduate school, and I began grad school there, went further. Um, and then, while I was working on my, my research for my dissertation, everything else was done, uh, you know, a crisis happened in my life. I really <laughs> sat and asked myself, what are you doing with your life? You say you are a Christian? that the gospel is the most important thing? Uh, what are you living for? And uh, my 
aims and objectives and ambitions in the world were not very different from secular ambitions. So there were a few other things that happened. And I decided that if I was going to, to study anything and, and teach anything, I want to do that with the Word of God. So I decided to go to a seminary. Well, um, the brethren I was in fellowship with, they did not believe in having fellowship with all who belong to God. And so I was warned that if I went and broke bread with anyone else, I would not be part of them anymore. So while studying in the seminary, I, there was an assembly that had a recent one that had started there. So I started attending. A few Sundays I sat there. They had the Lord's Supper in the evening, um, and uh, I would not break bread. And one Sunday I sat there, and I listened to what was going on, and I said to myself, these brothers and sisters, I acknowledge they are my brothers and sisters. They are remembering, worshiping the same Lord that I adore and worship. The bread that they are breaking is the broken, symbolic of the broken body of Christ, which is broken for me, and that's what they are confessing. And the cup speaks of the blood that Jesus shed for all who are saved through him, and that's for me also. Why am I not? part of this. And that was enough. And then, you know, it, it really was a journey where we read the Bible and let the Bible speak to us. That's the, so part of uh, what I wanted to, to achieve in my studies and what I seek to impart to students um, at the college is really how to read the Bible sensibly how to read the Bible to answer real questions. How do you discover the answers? And it has been a very rewarding journey on both counts, both for myself and for my students. So it's been a rewarding journey because I would read sometimes stuff, and as the more I read, it's like somebody put my head in a vice and was cranking it, you know? I said, what's the logic behind this? I mean, must I, as a believer, kind of discover all the problems that existed all over the place and solve and decide who was right where before I can be a Christian? So the Bible is much simpler. It's much more straightforward. The message of the gospel is, is a very clear, simple, open message. You can come into an everlasting relationship with God through faith in His Son. If you are in the Son, you have eternal life. We are all in the Son. I don't have a more exclusive criterion for keeping out those who belong to God than God Himself would. I'm not better than God. And that was enough. And you know what is rewarding uh, for me, even in my, my teaching ministry, uh, was for graduates of the program. Doesn't matter whether they majored in education or psychology or business or whatever else they did, to say, you know, one of the best things I'm taking away from Emmaus Bible College is to how to interpret the Bible. Sensibly. I have learned how to understand and study and interpret the Bible. And so... The Bible speaks to us in a very plain, 
uh, normal way. The language of the Bible is the normal use of language. It is God who speaks to it. It has got the guarantee of truth. There are many deep things to be discovered, but the depth of it is not violating the normal rules of language and using our own subjective imagination to find it. So there are straightforward ways of addressing problems and issues, but I should still ask the question, what are the limits of the basis of fellowship? And I, I, and I would say based on the biblical evidence, if you would acknowledge that someone truly belongs to the Lord and they are not living, and we'll look at the, the conduct issue, if the conduct does not contradict it, then we have fellowship with him, right? If you belong to Christ, the fellowship is not something I create. It is something that exists because of the work of God in their lives. And I'm merely acknowledging it. If they are not overt, explicit, and we look at some of those Valid criteria, if those issues don't exist, we maintain and express fellowship. Now, for practical Christian ministry, I'm, I'm going a little beyond the narrower question here. Obviously, um, the believers whose uh, doctrine of last things are not the same as mine, uh, they are still brothers, and I would, not, I would be happy to remember the Lord with them. But if I have to work with them in ministry and teaching in a church, that would be a little more problematic, correct? So there are, there are limits you draw for the extent of collaboration, working together, depending on the, the, the limits uh, and freedom and conviction that you want to communicate in your ministry and teaching. So that's a separate question altogether. So is the doctrinal basis of fellowship. There's one more related question I would like to address, that it seems like even in the early church, um, in the meeting of the church, you know, unbelievers could be present. Now, I, I'll prove it to you from the Bible, right? It's, we should prove everything from the Bible. So even in the meeting of the early church, that unbelievers could be present, at least the situation is entertained. It's not a very strong statement so Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about the disorder in the meeting of the church. Multiple disorders were going on. Uh, they, were, they had no clue about the Lord's Supper properly. They were doing their own thing. Uh, what was going on in Corinth was a potluck, where if you brought the pot, you had all the luck. Uh, you brought your own stuff and ate it. There was no sharing. There was no remembering the Lord. There were many, many things going on. Um, other problems were, you know, this, the speaking in tongues, uh, they were all speaking, and nobody could understand what anybody was saying, and Paul says, this is not proper, right? And so in, in talking about tongues, he said, I would rather you prophesy rather than speak in tongues. If, if they're a tongue speaker, they should not speak unless there is another one who can interpret for them who is present. But here he presents a situation. If you are prophesying, if an unbeliever walks in, now that's interesting, if an unbeliever walks in, so they did not, you know, collect the ticket at the door and lock the doors before the meeting began. If an unbeliever, an outsider or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? If all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider enters. So there seems to be some. It's, so they're not part of the church, and you would not mislead them to think that they have something real, substantial connection with the body of Christ, but it seems there's the opportunity for others to enter and hear the truth of God 
and be converted and become part of the body of Christ. That doesn't have to be the means of evangelism, but it seems like this possi possibility is entertained just for clarity. So I think there is something for Christians and churches to be welcoming without compromising the truth, without misleading people who haven't believed G the Lord Jesus uh, into thinking that they have a relationship with the Lord. I think a clear preaching of the gospel on a regular basis, that will lay it up before everyone, right? You preach the gospel clearly that a person, whether you're born in a church family or not, you need to be personally converted through faith in Christ. You speak that regularly and any outsider or insider will come to understand whether they are part of the church or not. And so uh, we can be welcoming uh, without compromising. More could be said, but let me, let me move on. There's the doctrinal basis for fellowship. There's also a conduct basis for fellowship, and this is very clear. And not all gospel preaching churches are apostolic are sufficiently biblically committed in these regards. But if you want to follow what the New Testament is teaching, we should uphold these things. So Paul writing to the Corinthians, again, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. It's probably a stepmother he married. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right? Something such as church discipline. Or if one's outward conduct is so immoral, that it really violates the standards of what is associated with God, then Paul says you should not consider him part of the church. You should not have ongoing relationship, fellowship with that one as if he is a brother. That's, it's there. He said, let him be removed from among you. Coming down to verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, but, uh, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, I wrote to you saying you shouldn't associate with the sexually immoral, but I didn't mean everybody in the world. Because even in Paul's world, there was a lot of immorality. The immorality is not a modern thing. Sexual looseness, homosexuality, these are not modern things. These were rampant in the first century when the church was growing and the gospel was being preached. But he said, you know, if these are outside people, in fact, there's no, I'm, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't associate with them. If you don't associate with the sinful people of the world, how will they ever come to know the Lord? In fact, what was the charge against the Lord Jesus by the religious people of the day? This man eats with, yes, with sinners and tax collectors, with the woman who came to anoint the Lord Jesus' feet while he was dining at the house of a Pharisee. That lady had guts 
right? Coming into a Pharisaic crowd with her background. She was touched by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And she could not be touched by the grace of God if our Lord had not reached out to people like that. So we are not commanded to go out of this world. You ought to be careful. You've got to rescue those like brands in the fire with taking care that your garments don't catch fire. However, there needs to be a reaching out to those. He says, so I didn't mean that you shouldn't associate with anyone in this world. Who am I to judge them? He will go on to say, verse 11, he said, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is a member of the church, if he has confessed faith in Christ, but then continues in sexual immorality. He says, greed. I wonder how we find that out. So it must be obvious in their public conduct. Right? Something obvious. I mean, even the rest of society probably condemns them for their dealings with people because it's motivated by greed. Or an idolater, a reviler, so some of these standards are pretty strict. A mocker, right? A drunkard, a swindler. So he says a Christian shouldn't be such a person. A Christian shouldn't be. And so these are recognizable shortfalls of morality and we bring bad name to the Lord by being so and associating with them so, it's very clear. He says, don't eat with them. Not to associate with anyone who is, and not even to eat with such a one. And verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? I'm not talking about an unbeliever. Go, go have a meal with, if you want to, if you have business interaction, work interaction, if you're trying to reach someone, don't be a judge over them first. They don't have to become moral before they tell them that they cannot make themselves moral enough to be accepted by the Lord, that grace of God is to be accepted freely, and it's the power of God that teaches. It is that grace that trains us to deny ungodliness. It is coming to Christ that gives me the grace and the enablement of God to say no to these things. <coughs> so, however, in the church... A public reputation in regard to morality and ethics is important. So this would also go to say, right, a part of a question earlier, works are an important evidence of faith. We are created for good works. The God is not against good works. God is against our thinking we can be good enough to earn his salvation or to be in his presence. That is where the problem is. But we should love good works. I mean, I really feel, it, part of my you know, interaction with believing people, sometimes we are afraid about good works. Somehow that we think if we encourage good works, we are compromising the gospel. This is not so at all. Do all the charitable work you want. God bless you to do it. It is, it is, it is wonderful. To be compassionate is not what is that what not what the Lord Jesus said to the rich young ruler. So have compassion, be generous, do good things. 
In fact, I may be jumping the gun here, but I will say it too. It's connected with the Christian service. Um, some of my brothers at the assembly, they really have a, a good model. Um, during uh, fall and spring, we meet on Saturday mornings uh, to study the Bible. During the summer, we find people who want work done at their house and, and go do it for them. This, this morning, there's a whole bunch of them helping somebody out. Trimming the bushes. So I have not been asked this. What about our own bushes? You've been making these service trips. But it's, it's a good thing. It's actually a demonstration of care within the body. Good works, we ought not to frown on good works. God approves of good works, not as a not as a denial of our need for grace, never. But as those who have come to know God, to be gracious, to be lights in the world, to be salt of the earth. This is what we are called to be, called to be and called to do. So um, the, the basis of fellowship then uh, has to be understood in terms of doctrine. If someone denies the essential doctrine that makes one a believer, then you cannot have fellowship. And if their outward conduct openly violates ethical moral standards, that's not the calling of a Christian. And so here we have some explicit standards. Let me move on then to the evidence, manifestation of fellowship. How are we doing time-wise? Okay. Manifestation of fellowship. What is the evidence that we share in things with one another in the body of Christ. And I, I would point out two evidences. Uh, one is really um, sharing or giving out of love, and the other is unity. So I already talked about, just touched on sharing. Sharing and giving out of love. Two uh, simple uh, um, labels for uh, evidences or manifestation of Christian fellowship. So let me uh, uh, move on and s speak about this, about sharing and giving. Um, in uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, one of the, the early things about the church is really what seems to be a social experiment they were conducting. They were not doing an experiment. It turned out that way. What happened in the early history of the church in Jerusalem? A whole bunch of people came to know the Lord. They were all Jews, Jewish background in Jerusalem. And it's a very interesting account here in Acts chapter 2. It says, those who received this word were baptized as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves. It's one of the key verses for us. And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, <coughs> to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were happening. And verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. You wonder what does that mean? Keep reading. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Seems like exciting times, right? To get pumped up, and this is really what was happening. They were excited about what was going on. The Messiah has come. He has brought us salvation. Believe in Him to be saved. Great excitement. We could use some. It was great excitement. And part of this excitement, they said, we are brothers. We are one family. Our destiny is with God. We are all going to share eternity together. Isn't this wonderful? Here is what I have. Now it's common property. I don't know how long this lasted. And I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I don't know what to make of this. I, I don't think they were doing an experiment. It's the outcome of the early excitement of the believers. And later on, maybe they realized, hmm, we still have some sin in us. So it's subsequent to this, we have the problem of serving at tables where some of the widows were being neglected. There are many who have gone to this communal experiment. So, but this was exciting. And when you come to chapter 4, we find that, you know, I mean, this is still mentioned. This is just before the Ananias and Sapphira account. It's a sort of a backdrop to it. The number of those who believed were a one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now think about that. What would happen here at Bethany if that happened? If this is not actually worked out, but it is still good to have this heart, isn't it? What I have been given is not for a selfish pleasure. It is a stewardship in the service of God. That seems to be the point of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he was rich and no one should grudge him. He lived in splendor and there was, there was another Israelite Another child of Abraham at his door. He was poor, desperate, covered with sores, and the only comfort him were of dogs that licked his sores and wounds. And the rich man couldn't say, I never saw him because he knows him. When he gets to the place of the dead, he recognizes Lazarus as a neighbor whom he never loved. What we have been given is a stewardship from God. You have discretion. The Bible does not teach communism. You have discretion, but it is good, it is good to remember that everything I have is a gift of God and it's a stewardship and I should serve the Lord with what I have been given. And at, the, at, the, at the, the foundation of my obligations is to love the Lord my God with my whole heart, soul, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And that's what they were doing in Jerusalem at the beginning. The fellowship in the early church existed not only within a congregation, it also actually goes beyond the congregation. 
This is one of the early major events in the early church. The Apostle Paul goes on missionary journeys. He goes to western Turkey. On the second missionary journey, he crosses the Adriatic. He goes to the other side. He goes to Macedonia, Greece, Athens, Corinth, returns. And then a famine was going on in Judea. So already at the time they were in Antioch, this had been said. And Paul already had taken a contribution to Antioch before. Now, even the second Corinthians shows up very prominently. But look at uh, what he says to the Romans at the end of the epistle to the Romans. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution or to do fellowship for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessing. Paul gives a rationale, a logic, why the Gentile churches should have some appreciation for the gospel that came from Jerusalem and show this appreciation by their contribution. For our purpose, our love for God's people should not be confined to the local, con local congregation. We are part there is one bride for the Lord Jesus. It's, it's, it's one church, right? It's one bride of all saints of all time. And so our vision of the body of Christ must extend beyond our narrower limits. And we should consider this. So contribution for this is for the needy in the church. And, you know, all, all the time there are situations that come up where it may be the right thing. Uh, for you and me to consider, to be moved, to act for the blessing, for the benefit of those who belong to Christ, but who are going through difficulties. Paul actually says uh, this in principle in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are the household of the faith. Right? It's a general principle. Because you are a Christian, you don't have to insist that you will only and always give to Christian charities. You should have compassion for the world at large. But do good to all, everyone, especially, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we should, shown by our sharing and, and additional a thing here, uh, sharing also should go under the support of the ministry of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians uh, 9, um, this is a, a long section. Um, I did not want to put all that text. It's actually a major argument that the Apostle Paul makes about why the ministry of the gospel should be supported by the saints. <laughs> you should read that section, right? Um, the Bible does not really provide tent-making as the model for the ministry. Paul made tents because he did not want to be obligated to anyone to, for carrying out the duty that the Lord Jesus gave him. He said the church should support the ministry, but he was not going to beg, pass his hat around to the people he preached in order to preach the gospel to them. So he did whatever resource he had to serve the Lord. You know, I'm so impressed by many who saw, show great commitment to serving the Lord. 
They serve the Lord with whatever they have. They have given up. I'm thinking of people who serve with me. We find value for the ministry of training people, of teaching people in the gospel. They are willing to give up much for the sake of the Lord. And so here he, Paul writes to the church saying, the ministry of the gospel should be supported by the saint. And there is um, in, uh, in, first Corinthians, sorry, in Galatians 6, I think the reference is missing there, 6.1, let the one uh, who is taught, no, it's not 6.1, it's further down in chapter 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. It's my favorite verse. But there should be support for the ministry of the gospel. In Romans, so here's some, and sometimes, you know, our tradition, we are a little squeamish about this, I think. I'm talking about the brethren generally. We don't like to talk about funds. Uh, Paul wasn't that squeamish. So you see what he says to the Romans in uh, Romans 15. He says, Romans, I'm coming by. I want to visit you. I wanted to visit you for a long time. I've been prevented thus far, but I'm coming. And tell you what, I want to come spend some time with you, and then you can send me onward to Spain. What a blessing for you. And he's serious. Is he doing his own thing? Is he going to some private party, uh, uh, some, some you know, vacation trip to Spain? No. He is taking the gospel. He is saying, believers in Rome, you have a marvelous opportunity to support the work of God by helping me to travel from Rome to Spain. You should say, wonderful, Paul, can't wait for you to get here. That should be the spirit. Because we are being offered an opportunity to share in the work of God's, God's mission, God's work to the world, God's grace and, and salvation to the world. He says, you know, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my journey there by you. It's, 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 to, to have a share in the work of the Lord is an opportunity. It's not a burden. You're not supporting the needy and the poor that way. You are giving to God in doing that. And then uh, let me, I, I got a thumbs up before. I think that it should be like this now, right? So, okay, <laughs> that's good. Um, um, our giving and should not only be of money. And the Apostle Paul is really, I, when I read Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, it's so, so impressive. And look at this man's heart. Paul is in prison. We mentioned this, I don't know, in some context earlier today. He's in prison. In Rome, the, the Caesar is waiting for a trial before Caesar, and the trial might end with his beheading, right? He might be gone. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And here's what he says. I don't know what is going to happen, he says, whether I'm going to be released. Now, he has got his inklings. It's going to be one way. But he says, uh, it is as is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored. Uh, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, we know this verse, but do, we un do you know what he's actually saying? He says, if I live on, I'm going to serve the Lord. 
If I die now, boy, nothing could be better. I'm going to be in heaven with the Lord. But for me to live is Christ means the purpose for living for a Christian is to serve the Lord. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. That's what I really want. But you know what, Philippians? I think I need to stick around for your sake. So I think the Lord is going to allow me to stay. What, what, a, what a vision of, of life and service. For him to live is Christ. Is the only purpose for living to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. And that is a great privilege and it's the greatest thing to do. And so, fellowship in giving ourselves for the work of the Lord. You know, uh, when I left secular studies for studying the Bible, I really did not have a call to the ministry. I just had some convictions about what really mattered and what didn't matter. But along the way came a conviction about being serving God's people. It came later while I was engaged in it. That we are to serve the body of Christ. I've been put in the body of Christ to serve the body of Christ. And Paul says it in Philippians 2, 17 this way. Think it's, look at his own perspective. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, huh, my life expended for the gospel, for your benefit, O Philippians and others to whom I have had ministry, I view it as being a life poured out before the Lord as a drink offering. I'm not... I do not consider it a loss, he says, for my life to have been expended this way. It is offered to the Lord. It's poured out. That's fellowship in the service of the gospel. And the last manifestation or the final thought is unity as a manifestation. A major place to go here, I think in 1 Corinthians 12, when it talks about the body of Christ, we have both the themes of unity and service. The whole idea of body, the whole idea of body speaks about a connected, singular, functional whole. And if anything should impress us about the need of unity in the church, it is really the metaphor of the body. We are a body. We are the body of Christ. He is the head, the church's body, just one. But not everyone was convinced as easily about the, 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 the wonderfulness of this as I just sounded. So they had complaints within the body. 1 Corinthians 12 and the unity is here. I won't repeat all of this. It says the same spirit is the source of the gifts. The same spirit, right? And the same Lord is the one who are, we are serving. We are serving the same God, being enabled by the same spirit of God. And seven, he says, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And then he says, there are two things you shouldn't do. In, so 
how unity comes about. You shouldn't say, I don't have what he has, therefore I'm not going to do anything. Don't do that. Don't say, I am the foot, I would rather be a hand. Don't say that. And then don't do this. Say, don't say, you're not good enough. I am the eye. I am much better than you. Don't do that. And that those are there in the verses I've quoted. The foot shouldn't say, I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. And verse 21, the eye shouldn't say to the hand, I don't need you. So we all need one another. And we all should value what the Lord has given us. So unity is part of the manifestation of fellowship. Oh, sorry, I, I see that it wasn't there. So verses 15 and 21 point this out. But I'm going to move on um, to one, two passages. One in Philippians uh, chapter 2. Paul says, believers, uh, you should, if you have fellowship of the Spirit, you should manifest unity. How do you become one? Well, set aside your own agenda and start thinking about what pleases the Lord best in this situation. That's the answer to the unity problem. And it might take you some time to get the answer. But the answer is that. What does the Lord want in this situation? What honors the Lord in this situation? What is pleasing to the Lord in regard to this question? If we search out the answer to that, then we are all on the same page. The unity of Christians in leadership, in service, in the body, is by all of us having the same mind as of the Lord. So Philippians 2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. And remember, this is a prelude to the great Christological passage. Christ is brought up as the example. He did not consider his own convenience. Although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to grasp onto, but emptied himself. You, likewise, should consider the needs of your fellow brother and sister above your own desires. Start being humble. Give in. But above all, have the same mindset through the Spirit, seeking to please the Lord. And then Ephesians chapter 4, um, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be one. You know why you should be one? You have the same Father. You have the same Lord. You have the same confession, baptism. You have, we could say more, you have the same destiny, you have the same hope. But here he says there's one body, one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to you. We all have the same hope of eternity with the Lord Jesus being changed into his likeness. It's the same blessing for all of us. It's the same Father, the same Lord, the same, same faith, the same message we trusted, the same identification with Christ in baptism, whether it's water baptism, spirit baptism, it's still the same. So we should be one because we have all the bases necessary for unity. And the Lord, see how the Lord desires this. It's an evidence of fellowship, unity. In John 17, in our Lord's high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only, not the 12 or the 70 or the large number in his day, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's for you and for me, that they may be one. How? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In another verse in the same passage, it says that they may be one, even as we are one. What makes the Trinity, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one? Let me try to give my understanding of it. There's only one agenda. There's only one goal. There's only one purpose. Now see, when God created human beings, he created man and woman, and he said the two shall be one. How does a couple become one? By having unity of purpose, of goal, of commitment. And if you can imagine three persons who are in infinite harmony, now, what is different about a polytheistic world is that they have different gods and everyone is like us. Each one has their own agenda. But when it comes to the living and true God, there's no difference. There's no different program. There's no different agenda. There's no self-interest on the part of any person of the Godhead. There is infinite harmony of purpose and action between the persons of the Godhead. And if human beings can approximate that, right? If a couple can approximate that, the body of Christ should come together and approximate that to live in harmony, to be one, even as the Trinity is one. And we have the foundations for it. Why? We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope to which we are called. One God and Father who is overall, who is in us all. What a wonderful place that we've been brought to by the grace of God. May we truly have fellowship with one another. All who belong to the Lord Jesus because of his grace in our lives and because of the privilege into which he has brought us. May the Lord be glorified through our lives and our testimony as we seek to serve him. Shall we pray? Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We thank you for our, our Savior who came to this world to rescue us, to set before us the perfect model of humanity who lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Give us like minds that we may seek to please you in all things and in so doing that we would become like-minded committed to the service of God receive glory in the lives of your people we give you thanks for your grace in Jesus name amen